Canto 13 of The Paradise sees Beatrice and Dante still in the heaven of the sun, in that manifest light. And it develops this sense that whilst things here on earth can seem so manifest, seem so self-evidently the case, that they conflict or are in tension with other things which seem similarly true and transparent and obvious, um, particularly when it comes to views about the way the cosmos is, these tensions which we've seen between the philosophers and the theologians. We've been encouraged to see how, if you look more carefully into the light of the sun, you see how actually that tension produces a dialectic which reveals a third new light, a light that's actually brighter than that which is manifest. So that dynamic is going to be developed now here in Canto 13. And Dante does so by opening the canto with quite a lengthy imaginative exercise. And what he does is he says, I want you to imagine the 15 brightest stars in the sky. And if you imagine the dark night of the medieval sky, which is so hard um, to imagine in the modern world, certainly if you're nearby cities, but nonetheless, imagine that great canopy of light and the 15 brightest of those stars, which will be very stunning. And then he says, imagine the seven stars of the Big Dipper, of the Great Bear, of the Wayne, as he calls it, um, and they're significant in the Northern Hemisphere because it's a very demonstrative constellation and it revolves um, around the sky, always seen summer and winter. And then he says, adds to that um, two more stars, which he says are the two stars at the end of the Little Bear, um, the Little Dipper. Um, and that is the one whose point at the other end of the constellation from the two stars is the North Star, so it's the one that's stationary in the sky. Um, so you can imagine, he says, almost like a kind of horn or trumpet coming out from that North Star, which is the one around which all the other stars revolve. If you can imagine those now 24 stars, and he says, imagine them turning, and you can see how they are like another constellation, um, the Corona Borealis, which actually is a constellation that's formed of two arcs which seem to be revolving around each other. Well, Dante says he wants us to hold this sky-sized, magnificent new constellation of these 24 stars and imagine them as two sub-constellations, two sub-constellations of 12 stars each that are rotating as if in some kind of glorious symmetry with the outer stars, those furthest away from the North Star, revolving more speedily than those closer to the North Star, particularly those associated with the Great Bear. And he says, if you can hold that rock steady in your mind and think how glorious that is to see, then you get but a faint intimation of the glory that he is now seeing here in the light of the sun. And I think the point about this exercise of the imagination is to say that it's precisely the imagination that enables him to see this deeper glory in the light of the sun, and that we can practice 
that deeper sight here in the empirical material world, particularly by imagining the stars revolving in great constellations with that magnificence, that, that glory which shows itself gradually through the imagination because of course we don't actually see the stars revolving moment by moment when we stare into the night sky. We have to sort of put something together to see that revealing itself. I mean, in parenthesis, of course, um, long exposure photography does something of that work for us. And it's wonderful to see these images of the stars in circles in the sky. Um, but what Dante is asking us to do is to not just rely on some technology, which of course wasn't available to him, um, but to put it together in our mind's eye. And that's so important because then we're able to put together these things which seem separate and distinct here on Earth and see that actually they reveal a deeper constellation, a deeper light, a deeper pattern, like the turning stars in the sky. And he says that is precisely what he sees now with these two groups of 12 lights, saints, here in the constellation of the sun. And he says that when you can put that together and see this deeper light, so you will be beginning to be able to put together the nature of God in God's self, how God is three in one. And it's precisely because of God's threeness and the way that that threeness interacts, what Aristotle called the perfect number, that its unity is seen. Um, it's the knower, the known and the knowing. Um, it's the light, the light given off and the loveliness of the light. It's the source, um, it's the vision, it's what that source and vision create in love. Um, these are threes that actually are going to appear throughout the canto. So this great imaginative exercise with which Canto 13 opens is a wonderful practice actually for developing an intimation at least of the inner sight which is really coming together now here in the heaven of the sun having been explored in the various ways through the heavens of moon, Mercury and Venus. And Dante says this is so important because with this celestial sight you will be able to see the things of the highest heavens and Dante is being prepared to move soon from the sphere of the sun into higher heavens and so needs this capacity and we can practice it here on earth and Dante the poet tells us that the difference between what you'll see in the highest heavens um, as opposed to what is manifest here on earth and obvious here on earth is like the difference between the speed with which the divine light rotates and revolves and he refers to the Chiana river which was a river known in Italy for its sluggish pace and um, it turned into marshland and hardly moved. The difference between those two motions, which effectively is infinite, is the kind of difference of sight and vision that we might be able to grasp if we practice these imaginative acts. Thomas Aquinas then comes forward again, shining with a gorgeous light, um, rejoicing as much to show Dante this spinning vision of celestial constellations as he now is to change his task and to explain a little more of this wisdom to Dante the Pilgrim. And Thomas says that Dante will realise that we've answered the question which you asked two or three cantos ago about the relationship between Francis and Dominic and how they're different 
um, testimonies to the divine light complemented each other and so brought forth a new, fresh vision of Christianity in the medieval world. But Thomas says, um, you'll remember that you had another question as well, because he had described Solomon as with a surpassing wisdom. And this had raised a question in Dante's mind, because he presumed that actually there were two human figures that had surpassing wisdom. One, of course, is Christ, and then the other was the original human being, Adam. And Thomas says that your thought is quite natural there, because Adam and then Christ were made directly by divine touch, um, whereas most human beings, everyone else, um, are made by a um, coming together of natural generation, um, if you like, nature reaching up um, towards the heavens, and then divine life coming down and being breathed into that which has been born of the earth. Um, and so whilst that is gorgeous and tremendous and carries the imprint of the divine, Thomas explains that that which is born by this natural means will reflect the divine light in different ways. Um, Thomas explains that the divine light cascades out through the heavens and through the first nine levels of the angels, and the seraphim, the cherubim, the powers, the principalities, the archangels, the angels, and the others who we'll see later in the paradise. And these are um, divine cre creatures. They're um, begotten, not made. And so they reflect um, the divine light perfectly in their differences. But when the light comes down and meets um, the natural um, tendency to want to rise back towards the heavens, um, the created order, um, then the light is reflected um, in partial ways. And so human beings and everything else in creation definitely carry aspects of the divine, um, but only aspects. And so don't have the perfect wisdom, which was the case with the exceptional figures of Adam and Christ. Now, Thomas describes this um, in a very interesting way. Um, because he talks about the creation of Adam and Christ, referring to how Adam's from Adam's side came the rib that formed Eve. So the intimation there is that actually Eve shared in this primordial wisdom as well. But then when he refers to Christ, he talks about the one whose side was pierced by the lance, um, one of the things that happened to Christ's body on the cross. And so there's a really interesting juxtaposition here of the rib that was creative and gave birth to Eve and the lance that, as it were, came out of Christ's side, which gave birth to, well, I think it gave birth to um, our redemption, um, our ability to rise back to the celestial heights. Um, but it's such an interesting way of putting it because it sees the act of the cross as creative rather than as sacrificial. And so that chimes with what Dante has been nudging towards early on, that actually the act of Christ in saving humanity, saving in inverted commas, was actually God doing what God always does, which is pour new creation into the world, but with a fresh dispensation, with a sort of new light, with a new wisdom, that of the incarnation. 
Um, so Dante is developing his soteriology here and replacing the more sacrificial notions of the cross with the incarnational dynamics of God, which in a way um, doesn't try and fix our guilt so much as outshine that which goes wrong in human nature by giving all the more gloriously of divine creativity into the world, bringing together the divine and the human, putting together these things that seem incompatible, um, these things that seem like they can't possibly share the same life, but with imaginative sight, with this spiritual vision that Dante is gaining here in the light of the sun, can be seen to be so. So this lovely description of creation by which the divine meets natural causes, by which the incarnation leads us back to God, actually intensifies for Dante the question about Solomon, because Thomas has told him that Adam and Christ were the wisest. And so how can that sit alongside how he had described Solomon's light as full of wisdom? And what Thomas explains is that He'd also said that out of those who arise, i.e. out of those who come from the created order, none have been wiser than Solomon. And this is significant, partly because of debates at the time about Solomon, um, the Hebrew king, and whether he had been saved by the Christian dispensation. Um, Dante is clearly saying yes, um, because of this incarnational act, um, which fills the whole of creation. But it's also significant because I think it becomes another imaginative exercise in seeing divine wisdom operating in the world. Only this time, rather than focusing on light and pattern and coming together, it focuses more on the rational side, on intelligence, on wisdom. And what Thomas says to Dante is that um, you would have realised that, as I was talking about Solomon being, Solomon being um, wisest of all those who arose out of the created order. You'll have seen that I was referring to his kingly wisdom, um, and Thomas says he didn't ask rational questions, for example. He asked for the more practical know-how um, that a good king can have, and that is where Solomon um, brilliantly um, succeeded. And it leads Thomas, in the final part of the canto, to a series of, ref a series of reflections about being cautious before coming to conclusions too speedily and pointing out contradictions, pointing out paradoxes, um, saying yes, but it should be yes or no. Um, he says, have slower feet, have a leaden approach to these questions, because then that enables you to contemplate and see more deeply into what might be going on. He says, this is the mistake that many philosophers have made, um, when they have rushed to too speedy, rational a conclusion, as it were following their logic, as if logic alone can decide, rather than waiting for a deeper intelligence to start to come through their seeming paradoxes. Um, he says that Christian heretics, um, figures like Arius, that was their mistake as well, was that they insisted too quickly on resolving seeming paradoxes like the Trinitarian nature of God, like um, the twofold nature of Christ in the Incarnation, rather than resting with these tensions, what seems so difficult to put together, and then seeing that actually the very resting reveals a new light. And he concludes by saying, 
you meet this everywhere, this tendency of Mr and Mrs know-it-alls, as he puts it, who insist that they're seeing with God's eyes and they know what are the wheat and what are the tares, um, using Jesus's um, parable from the Gospels um, and insisting that the wheat are going one way and the tares are going another, um, as if they can judge. They actually serve as a warning because that rush to know, that rush to decide, that rush to condemn, which clearly is so prevalent, particularly in the religious world, is precisely what thwarts them from seeing this stellar light, from moving through the heavens to the heaven of the sun, and then being able to see more directly in this wonderful imaginative vision that takes time to emerge, the nature of God in God's self.